in in my opinion, this movie is far more horrible, immoral to show to children than say American Psycho or something that has extreme violence or extreme gore, but some sort of humanist message. There's a sort of anti-humanist message, I think, at the bottom of Toy Story. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back. This is the Reader's Karamazov. Well, really, it's the first break-off episode of The Watcher's Karamazov. This is a patrons-only discussion of movies. So if you are listening to this, that means that you have signed up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Reader's Karamazov. Go ahead and spread the word if you want to. Also, remember to follow us on social media, facebook.com slash the Reader's Karamazov, as well as at the Reader's K on Twitter. Don't forget to leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting some lovely five-star reviews. We'd love to keep that up. So rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Our first movie, a bit of an oddball pick maybe if we're thinking about the sort of highbrow picks that we've chosen for our books, certainly on on the Reader's Karamazov. But we're going to be talking about a children's movie, one of the most important children's movies, I think, undeniably, that's ever been made, which is Pixar's very first hit, Toy Story. But we're going to get to hear uh, some of your amazing takes on this film. This is a film that you do not like and you think has had, I think it's fair to say, a pernicious influence on culture. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. I'm going to offer, jump in and offer maybe some qualified defenses of the film. But I'm very mostly interested to hear what you have to say and why you don't like this film. Before Carl begins to tear into this film, in case you've lived under a rock for the last 25 years, <laughs> Toy Story released in 19, <laughs> 1995 the first major feature-length film made by Pixar Studios. And of course, Pixar has now become synonymous with a particular style, both of animation, the CGI, very advanced, increasingly, we might say, realistic, whatever that means, computer animation, but also a house style of, of narrative and storytelling, right? There's literally a set of house rules that they have about the way they tell stories. And of course, they've gone on to produce a lot of highest grossing films, uh, animated films of all time, including things like Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, WALL-E, The Incredibles, that sort of thing. They've, they've changed children's movies as we know them, certainly in the United States. And they are, I'd say at this point, maybe even more so than Disney, their parent company who, who owns them, instantly recognizable for a particular style of film. Toy Story, very briefly, because I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen the movie, is about a bunch of toys and they talk. They live with a boy named Andy, who's a very good hearted, but you know, of course, excitable young boy. The main toy at the beginning of the film is Woody the cowboy. He represents the old ways and a, a sense of comfort. And he is Andy's favorite toy. Over the course of a few days though, Woody's life gets thrown upside down. Andy and his family are moving from their house. So they're getting ready to pack. So that's a lot of stress. On top of that, Andy's just had a birthday. And at that birthday, he receives 
Buzz Lightyear, the wonderful grand new space explorer toy. Buzz quickly becomes Andy's favorite toy and Woody feels very neglected. The problem is that strangely enough, Buzz does not realize that he is a toy. Every other toy in this movie realizes I'm a toy. I'm a child's plaything, as Woody says at one point. And Buzz does not realize this. He thinks that he is a space ranger. Well, some hilarity ensues. Buzz and Woody get trapped together in some dangerous situations and through the power of friendship must uh, work their way back to Andy. And that's basically the film. So there's some hijinks, there's some laughs, there's some wonderful sarcasm for the adults and that sort of thing. And that sort of sets our pattern really for what the last 25 years in a lot of ways of children's films have looked like in one form or another. But now that we've gone over the basics, Carl, I'm just fascinated to know this is probably one of the most universally beloved films of the last 30 years. Even film snobs, right? People who would generally say, I'm not gonna watch a children's film, tend to say, oh yeah, I love Pixar. I love Toy Story, the original Toy Story started it all. It's incredible. So I gotta ask you, why do you hate this film? Well, if you're listening to this podcast in 3020, as you've cobbled together some sort of tin can and able to hear this, you will know why this film is, if it's, if it's worthy of any respect, it's worthy, it's in that great tradition of technically innovative and morally disgusting films, such as The Triumph of the Will, The Birth of the Nation, Gone with the Wind, and here, Toy Story. What makes the plot of Toy Story so insidious is how much it sweeps under the rug, well-packaged for children. So, so you've got to then explain this. In what, <laughs> way is, in what way is Toy Story an anti-humanist film? Especially since you know, I think most of our listeners would assume Pixar, in some ways, are the inheritor of a great humanist tradition, telling these, these stories that are about the core concepts of humanity, friendship love, grief, loss. What, what makes this movie in particular, in your mind, anti-humanist? Well, I guess, and I don't mean that in the sense that like Foucault or someone used the word anti-humanist. I mean it in the sense of like against the human project, you know, in which humanists try to find meaning in human relationships or in human life. Well, the entirety of the movie, let's remember, focuses on toys and humans in the movie are their heads are cut off, we see their feet, and we're meant to sort of give pathos to them through how they, how just a foot trips on an object or various sort of disembodied limbs are seen. So already we're equating toys, which we all know aren't gifted or whatever with consciousness and human beings who are, their heads are almost never shown except for Sid, right? Which we'll get to Sid later and his and his sister they're just sort of objects out there as are these toys and so already we've shifted the playing field into one of post-modernity where objects relate to objects there aren't really subjects in the sort of modern sense where people go about their day in society have some dealings with technology and the relationships are sort of one-to-one or end-to-end between human beings. Now there are objects out there of which human beings are one or the characters of the story are just objects. And they're just objects in a world where all meaning comes down to 
if you are of use in that moment. You have a particular capitalist value put on you, and that value tends towards obsolescence very quickly. Okay, so so let's. I want to take a concrete example of this from the film. There's a sort of running joke in the film that Rex, the dinosaur, mm-hmm. who's voiced by the wonderful Wallace Shawn, is terrified because he is afraid that Andy is going to get a new dinosaur that is actually scary. Because Rex, despite being a T Rex, is very he's he's basically Wallace Shawn come to life. So he's a you know short little dumpy guy, very unintimidating. So he's worried that he's going to get replaced. And that fear of replacement is running through the film. Yeah, the inciting incident, right, in the movie is Buzz Lightyear comes to Andy's house and he will replace and render meaningless Woody as Andy's favorite toy. We have this sense that Andy determines all meaning for these toys. And and there's already, there's a real class-based argument to be had here, right? the top worker in the warehouse or wherever is bound to be replaced. And the second that their ability to create happiness in someone else goes down, they're meaningless. There's no intrinsic value to any of these toys in and of themselves. It's all about who's the newest, who's the most play friendly, um, the most exciting, who has the most gadgets, who has the most, you know, Buzz has the laser and the wings and he comes in a rocket ship. Woody's gun is is no longer there, right? Clear symbol of his lost masculinity or his crisis in masculinity. His his drawstrings a little bit wonky too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's so there's already this sense that like obsoleteness is the norm of our day. We're in postmodernity. We now are in a world where machines or non-human things do most of the work that humans once did, and so you're therefore not meaningful. But at the same time, it's a world pervaded with only these material objects, which we all need. And so we live in this world where Andy, in order to be a good boy or have a meaningful sense of play and to structure his days, he needs all of these toys. There's this whole movement, you know, not everyone buys their children these days hundreds of toys or however many toys Andy has, you know, 40, 50. It's as though the product placement becomes the movie in this movie. <laughs> and I think that's part of what I'm trying to get at why, is, why it's so insidious. There's no world in which you can play wrongly with toys and be good or play with your friends with maybe one toy, like a ball, be active and be a good child. Because from the standpoint of Pixar, why would you make a movie about that when there's nothing to sell then? Uh, it's interesting then also because the only, essentially the only interaction that Andy has directly with other children comes at his birthday party. We're introduced to the birthday party because the toys are watching out the window, looking at the presents coming, and they're literally measuring. It's like a dick measuring contest. How big are the presents? How big are they? And then we cut to, they come inside, and then all of a sudden, they're, they're immediately about to open presents. Like, what kind of a birthday party is this? But it, it kind of nicely symbolizes... Even Andy's friends only have a sort of use value for him in this film. They're only there to give him stuff. For sure. And the humans themselves only have a use value with respect to the endless world of more and more production of more and more useless things, right? (laughs) Yes. What we care about in the movie are how 
sad it is that the useless things don't feel useful enough. I guess we care a little bit about Andy, but really it's about who of the useless things is most exciting and interesting and best suited to go on for Andy or for someone else as an interesting toy. It does strike me thinking about it in this way, how little there is of the inner life of Andy particularly not just because he's the main human character, but because he's a kid who's who's going through some stuff, right? He's got apparently like, I mean, it's, it's just him and his mother and his baby sister. We don't know he at one point had a father or whatever, not there now. And they're moving. So there's like this pain of separation, right? There's some sense in which you would think there would be an attachment to the home, having to leave that home, you know, some sense of nostalgia or whatever, but it's not there. It's just, we don't get any of that. There's no emotional content to any of that. He can only process the feelings of separation through being separated from Buzz and Woody. That's where his absent paternity comes in, right? And that's sort of one of the chief things that the movie is subtly doing is saying, do you have some lost connection to transcendence? Buy it from us. And then those two figures, who they are and what they represent, Buzz Lightyear, and Woody are the vires for top notch in the sort of American soft power push of what's great about America? Why is it the world cultural leader? The cowboy and the astronaut. These are two things that are intrinsically great, according to the movie, and America's inventions. And they're the kind of man a man should be. A man should be rough and robust and top of the heap and be willing to explore all things and always courageous. And the movie plays these things as, you know, risible at times, but these two characters end up working out. And it becomes this sort of deeply reactionary in the negative sense way of saying, whatever side you're on, as if these two sides were anything but far right and slightly less far right, the cowboy or the space ranger, whether you're like that old school cowboy or that new, new school space ranger, and he's a space ranger, right? He's the new Texas ranger. Those, those two sides are great. You, can, you, can, you don't need any status anxiety about either one. Both are great. And then what's unsaid is, and both are American and both project a sense of how America ought to control and lead the world. <laughs> not, not to get too meta here, because uh, I don't know how much of this valence would have been there in 1995 when we didn't maybe know as much about them, but there's a very appropriate twist at the level of voice casting going on here, right? Because you have in their own rights, two avatars of sort of late 20th century American masculinity voicing these two characters. You mm -hmm. have Buzz voiced by Tim Allen, who has recently become re-famous for tweeting about <laughs> Karl Marx, um, who's become a very sort of grumpy conservative, but at the time, maybe less than that, was well known as the sort of gruff but lovable sitcom dad mm -hmm. on home improvement and a sort of symbol of self-reliance and that sort of American way of doing things. And then you have Tom Hanks, who if Tim Allen is sort of the kind of conservative version of this, Tom Hanks is sort of the centrist slightly liberal version of this the self-appointed america's dad exactly so and literally now mr roger he has inhabited mr rogers so. oh that's what a travesty uh, <laughs> right yes he absolutely he is he's a sort of the joe biden here right 
We just want a dad, a dad to come and comfort us. Um, yes. And so he's, even though he's a sort of softer masculinity, he still inhabits those very American traits and certainly does as Woody, right? Woody, the character is more like Tom Hanks, the character, right? And, and Buzz is more like Tim Allen, right? The sort of lovable idiot. Whereas Woody is more responsible. He's care. He clearly cares about the toys under his charge and that sort of thing. He's, he is the sort of dadish figure there. Buzz calls Andy your chief and because he's accepted them into your culture. And so it's this very Robinson Crusoe on Mars manifest destiny to the next, you know, Western frontier, the final frontier, right? And it's so it's this continuation of this problematically colonialist American project. But now on the level of the base of your children's minds, what could be more insidious than that? This is like a deeply disturbing way of thinking about what a child is. A child is just a consumer to monetize that isn't monetized yet. This movie lives smack dab in the middle of that world. There's no real place outside of that. All of Andy's important decisions and important events about him changing and growing up and learning to deal with loss and friendship, what's right and wrong, these are all centered around going to Pizza Planet where everything is a video game and his life is lived through what he buys. He's already the nihilistic, out of tune, uh, depressed millennial that will in their 20s wonder why it is they're just accumulating all these things. Can we talk about Sid for a little bit? For sure. Let's, let's change gears because Sid occupies a very strange place in this movie. Just to refresh if it's been a while since you've seen it, Sid is the sort of bad kid next door to Andy. And it's in his house that Woody and Buzz eventually, through a series of mishaps, get trapped. And Sid likes to take toys, rip them apart, and put them back together, sort of like an island of Dr. Moreau, or right, an island of Dr. Hasbro, I guess, in this case. <laughs> but you have some very interesting ideas about, about Sid and the place he may occupy in the film. And Sid has garnered a somewhat unfortunate reputation, obviously, as the villain of the film. He's very clearly the villain of the film. But you see things a little differently. So tell me about that. So let's remember if there are heroes of the film, it's Woody and Buzz, right? Woody, I think, is at the very least guilty of voluntary toy slaughter when he pushes <laughs> Buzz out the window. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the other toys are so you know up in arms about this that they barely take him back at the end as they shouldn't. And then as I've expressed, Buzz is clearly this vehicle for a kind of jingoism or colonialism. But, you know, they they team up and they defeat poor Sid. Sid, the, the skateboarding, skull-wearing 90s kid, <laughs> right? Is it, oh, is, I should have known it was coming back to this. It was the only person whose relationship with toys is destructive, but that destruction leads to important productivity, emotional productivity anyway, right? And of course, he's slightly cruel when he takes his sister's toys and takes the heads off them, you know, but like, he also sort of, in the, you know, the best sense of like deconstruction, the philosophy or the literary movement where you unearth something that's going on in a text or in a work, he's repurposed them to make them look uncanny and they scare Buzz and Woody. But he's also shown that like, the relationship a human being has to a automaton is one of uncanniness he exposes that and expresses that and it's that lack it's the sort of covering back 
over of that truth that is what we get at the end of the film. In Another World, Sid is sort of, I mean, he's also the inventor figure, right? Because mm -hmm. it's fascinating to me, the only toy, obviously Andy uses his toys for imagination, but the only toy that really gives Andy any control is Mr. Potato Head, who's the, also the only, I guess the Etch-a-Sketch is in there, but really the only branded toy in the film is uh, Mr. Potato Head. And, but Mr. Potato Head's creativity is extremely limited, right? There's this sort of very funny scene where he's like, oh, I got to shave because there's a Mrs. Potato Head and he, he just pulls his mustache off. And, and that's the creativity of Mr. Potato Head. It's like, there's only so many holes. I think that went out of context. <laughs> there's only so many holes to put stuff into. But then with Sid, he's got a whole sort of realm of untapped possibility. And even the really, I think, you know, kind of the by far the creepiest looking toy is the toy that is sort of like a spider's body and then a mm -hmm. doll, a baby doll's head with an eye missing and like the hair looks really disturbing. This is like wiry hair. But that one, you know, on this watch through, what I noticed is that spider body is what appears to be made out of maybe what we would call connects or something like that, right? Which is mm -hmm. this children's toy from the 90s where you have to, it's almost like very basic mechanical labor. You have to put it together. You have to, to use like not screws, but like you have to, to fasten things together. It's almost like being a welder or something without the actual welding. And so there's there's a need to be inventive there to, to put those things together in new ways that's ab absolutely missing from Andy's play, right? Andy just has these ready-made things that are, that are ready to go and he can just kind of go from there rather than having to build and create his own worlds. And so Sid really exists outside of that, the need for constant consumption that you're talking about. And at, the, and at the very least, if Sid's toys, though they're all unvoiced, so they're like the true lumpen proletariat or something, they have at least a better sense of the, the class relationship in Marx, right? It's one of antagonism, not protagonism. It's far more insidious to say, you know, oh, this company loves you. This company will always help you and do whatever it, whatever it can to make sure that you are okay. That's kind of the relationship that you know, like Woody, the strike breaker is trying to give to the, others, <laughs> to the other toys. Andy loves us. Andy will always take care of us. Um, He's a company, company man. And Sid, you know, in his wickedness as at least showing you what the truth is. He's there to exploit you. And that's how it is. That's the, that's the truth of the matter. <laughs> should we turn and talk about, a little bit about, um, since we're, we're running a little bit low on time, should we turn and talk about the broader effect of Pixar on our culture. Sure. Yeah, of course. Joss Whedon is one of the writers of this. And already in the beginning of the movie, we're in this multiverse of toys, which right. totally precedes the Marvel multiverse that we are all drowning in and will remain drowning <laughs> in for who knows how long, uh, unless Super Scorsese saves us from it. Uh, <laughs> never, that's never happening. <laughs> but you know, um, so like, why would toy soldiers and a dinosaur and Bo Peep and Woody and a space ranger just stop for a second and ask if that creative world makes any sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't. But, you know, this attunes us to that idea. And like, I think Mark Marin or somebody has this, goes on a rant about these, these people who are like children almost, who are obsessed with Marvel movies and they're, they're wondering for the return of Iron Man. Right. And I, he very pejoratively links it to people like wondering for the return of Jesus. Like, is it going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> like, oh, I'm ready. And he's saying these people like they seriously believe that, you know, Iron Man will appear in real life someday soon, et cetera, et cetera. What's um, fascinating about this, as I think about it, Carl, is this, 
that you identify this in Toy Story as sort of an origin point for this way of thinking. I don't know if you remember this. A couple of years ago online, there was a big deal because somebody claimed that he had discovered a way to link all of the Pixar films together into one megaverse, <laughs> right? So that the cars from, from cars exist in the same world as the toys in Toy Story, who exist in the same world as Wall-E, who exist in the same world as whatever, The Incredibles and Ratatouille. All these films are linked together in this magical, mystical conjunction of stuff. And that's just, it's kind of fun to laugh at it and say, you know, okay, you got too much time on your hands. But really, it's that sort of, this is the thinking that has come to dominate the way that we think about films, certainly, and I think many other areas of culture as well. The idea that things are not valuable in and of themselves, movies are not valuable in and of themselves, they're valuable as part of this interlocking series of events. Yeah, and, and ever since whatever... What movie was it? Maybe the Hulk that they like remade enough times oh, yes. so that it could be correctly story linear with the new Avengers movie. You're you're exactly right. There's only a a place in this megaverse. Is it canon or is it not? This is kind of the yes. what makes a movie worth seeing or worth making. If it's canon, well, we have a lot more opinions than if it's not canon or something. He says two important things to that end in the in the movie where he, he convinces Buzz when Buzz is like, I'm a toy, nothing matters. He says, being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, really? That's crazy. And then he also says to Sid when he kind of, when the toys kind of get him and they escape, we toys can see everything, so play nice. And that's the, yes. depth, that's that's the depth of the ideology in this movie. Better to be a toy than a space ranger don't have aspirations just go along with things <laughs> and toys see everything so play nice big brother's watching so make sure that you buy all the toys play with them nicely grow up to be a person who has kids who buys all the toys and plays with them nicely and now <laughs> it's my turn to get weird you got to get weird now i'm gonna get weird and think about this in connection to modern what we call modern surveillance capitalism oh yeah exactly and in particular i'm thinking about that its application to contingent labor in in 2020 2021 where you have this constant ability to through technology to monitor others and their behavior and from that then affect their employment i'm thinking about i've seen this multiple times but right in the, the height of the pandemic i remember seeing some rich famous person, I don't know who it was, I think it was a singer or something, and they were complaining about the service that they got from their Uber Eats driver or their DoorDash driver, one of these food delivery company drivers. And the company, they, this person posted about it on Twitter, the company immediately reached out to them and basically got this, the, the delivery driver fired, right, for their inadequate service. They did something wrong, right, who knows? It could have been major, it could have been minor. But this sort of terrifying ability for everybody at all times to be able to monitor you and then report you to the big boss and affect your labor is absolutely terrifying. Come, it comes along with that idea. The toys are always watching you. Our, our devices are always monitoring you. 
yeah. your your smart watches figuring oh, out if God. you're doing you're doing the right thing at all all times is your heart rate high enough is your all of these things we have all this connection between these technologies yeah that's like the the guy who um, his wife caught him cheating on him because at like 3 a.m his heart rate would spike all the time on, <laughs> on his apple watch <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing at 3 a.m.? And I think you can guess. Literally all of our toys now are watching every, everything oh we do. They're, they're our toys as adults. And that started with Toy Story. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're running out of time, so we won't dive too, too deeply into necessarily the effect that Pixar has had on the film industry. We talked about the marvelification of everything, which I think is a very pernicious trend that has sped up in the last 10 years or so. But I think it's clear has some sort of root in, at least one of its roots is in Toy Story. I, I, I buy that claim that you're making here. It is interesting to consider the ways in which Pixar represents a certain very controlled brand of what Dwight McDonald would call mid-cult. And it's this very, very middle brow, but it tries to convince you that it is high brow. And so, right, what's essentially going on in most, most Pixar films is they're, they're trying to convince you that don't think of this as a film for kids. Think of it as a film that adults can enjoy too, and kids will laugh at because they'll appreciate it at one level, but you'll appreciate it at a much deeper level. Makes me think of one of my favorite Onion articles, which is but way back in the day, they had the recurring guy who was like kind of like the comic book store owner from The Simpsons. And there is a wonderful headline from an Onion article that says, I appreciate the Muppets on a much deeper level than you do. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what this is, right? It's, it's convincing parents that there is something that they understand that is much deeper than what the kids are getting out of the film. And so it's okay to like these films and think that they're worthwhile and think they're really worth something. And I'm thinking about this in the context of, there's another kind of cra slightly crasser path taken by films like the Shrek franchise and the other films from DreamWorks that is a little bit more, it leans a little bit more into the hip and sarcastic side of that. So it's appealing to adults through its edgy sensibilities. Ooh, we're taking fairy tales and we're reversing them. That sort of thing. Pixar has been a little bit classier. And basically what it's trying to convince you of is that it's exploring very deep adult emotional states through these children's films. So you think about movies like Inside Out, which is about being inside of a girl's emotions. It's supposed to be very deep and affecting. And in some ways it is affecting. It, it, there are some very emotional moments in the film, but when you kind of take a step back, you realize there's all of these machinations going on and manipulations going on at the level of story that are trying to wring that, those tears out of you. And that's, and that's what Pixar really has done, right? They, they've set up this system whereby they're a well-oiled machine for producing laughs for kids and tears for adults. Yeah. And so there's a certain amount of infantilization that goes on there. That's, I think, different than things that have gone before, even, I mean, there's certainly connections, but I think it's different than, than you know, maybe children's films that have gone before, or you think about the sort of wonderful anarchy of the Looney Tunes, right? The classic Looney Tunes. There's not a moral there. There's not a, you know, anything deep there, but it is this weird, wild and wonderful world for kids to be in. Right. I love I love what you say about the like perennial infantilization Pixar wants. And you can definitely link that to 2008 and 2020 lows in the American The Avengers assembled for, for, for Biden. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> in Toy Story, around 36 and a half minutes in, we get to Pizza Planet. Buzz Lightyear is bowled over at how wonderful it is inside. 
and in the corner a kid is playing a game called planet killer and this kid is loving it the movie treats this as normal and fun and that's the whole movie right there (laughs) 90s kids get used to it you and all your friends as you grow up in our late capitalist ecocidal world system are playing the game of planet killer i hope you enjoy the game disney is saying i hope you are getting all the cool extra features and scoring all the bonus points because when the game's over, that's it. No more planet. Other games are Annihilator and Black Hole, which Andy can be heard wanting to play. This is Andy, not Sid. So he can watch, quote, the whole universe explode. Sid, the true hero, is destroying the very games themselves, trying to save us all from the dangerous desires we have to destroy ourselves and our planet in destroying the agents of true destruction Sid makes for a figure of paradoxical but truly revolutionary peace. Sid's skull t-shirt is that memento mori. His eyes are on the true prize. He fears death and therefore is wise to our potential ecocide. The Randy Newman songs and their sappiness evokes the we'll meet again Verilin ending of Dr. Strangelove. Now that's a take. <laughs> Oh, those Russians.